Well, we've had one sermon, and you're about to hear a second one. Wasn't that great? No greater words. I was lost. Now I'm found. I was blind, and now I see. And uh, seeing our kids place their trust in Christ and um, God do his thing in, in their life, much like he is just like he's done in our life. So really fun this morning. If you would, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. As we are on the fourth of five sermons in our Lynchpin series about the resurrection, uh, four or five sermons in chapter 15. <clears throat> Let me remind us a little bit where we are. Paul is being both pastoral and very practical as he goes through chapter 15. He's made an argument about the resurrection from the dead from the authority of Scripture. First four verses. He's made an argument from evidence of eyewitnesses that they saw the risen Christ, verses 5 through 11. He's made an argument from logic, verses 12 through 19. And last week, as Bonnie taught, he's made an argument that the resurrection should affect our day-to-day -day living in 20 through 34. <clears throat> but having won the day and proved his point, Paul is not content to stand in triumph over his defeated foes to just win an argument. He literally wants the Corinthians and every Christ follower who follows and knows Christ to begin to experience the transformational, genuine change that this truth makes in their life. And so what he does, he presses the truth of the resurrection today in our text, 35 through 49, to its actual impact on our physical bodies, that it actually does something to change our physical bodies. And in doing so, he, he gives us a seminar. And he gives us a seminar, resurrection seminar, and he's the teacher because the students are asking questions. We also must remember that Paul presses throughout chapter 15 because the Corinthians have rejected the resurrection from the dead. Now, there's no wonder. We don't have to wonder why they have. We've studied 1 Corinthians enough to know. If you read the beginning chapters, it's everywhere. We see their calls for error, divisions with each other, apathy and disregard toward sexual sin, participating in pagan worship ceremonies that have demonic powers associated with it, satisfying their fleshly appetites day and night. So all through 1 Corinthians, up to chapter 15, Paul, in a sense, has been uncovering the dirty laundry of the Corinthians and trying to show them this is not what it looks like to follow Christ. And then in chapter 15, what he really does, he hammers home the rejection of the resurrection of the dead as their root problem underlying all their sins. Why? Because if you reject the resurrection of the dead, then you can live as you please and do as you want. And Paul said, that's your root problem. This is pretty ironic. He shows us this, actually, in the last couple of verses that Monty spoke of last week. Look at verse 33 and 34. Paul says, do not be deceived, Corinthians. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Paul's linking those, and he's saying 
that the Corinthians' morality is determining their theology. They have it opposite. The Corinthians have entered into relationships with those rotten apples, spiritually speaking, in a sense. Meaning, uh, these people they run around with have intimacy with the pagan culture, esteem those who spoke worldly wisdom. They listened to those who told them what they wanted to hear in order to justify what they felt like doing. And Paul is saying, you need to wake up from your drunken stupor. Now, for us, practically, that doesn't mean that we don't hang around non-believers. Absolutely. But Paul is saying, you're not hanging around non-believers for the purpose of evangelism and influence. You're just, you're just hanging around cray folk so you can be crazy with them. So here's what happens in this text. There's a question that's asked. The students ask a question. Look at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come back with? That's how you could ask the question. So Paul puts these two questions that are asked about the resurrection. And in doing so, somebody either asked them or Paul knew that they would be asked, understanding the human condition. So Paul addresses them. The first question speaks of their doubt about the resurrection. The second question speaks of the why of their doubt behind the resurrection. But in reality, these questions are really one question. Let's, uh, let's pretend that my house burns down. And in doing so, all that's left is a few boards and the concrete foundation. And I assured Jenna, I said, honey, look, look, we have no money, we have no insurance, no materials to rebuild, but I assured Jenna, I said, honey, don't you worry, we're going to rebuild this house and it's going to be better than the house that we had before. She'd probably roll her eyes at that point. And she would say, Jeff, how are you going to rebuild this house? What do you think a new house would look like built out of this leftover mess that we have, these boards and concrete foundation? That's really one question, and that's what they are asking. The Corinthians literally are thinking here, Mary Shelley's very famous story, Frankenstein. Zombies. How do you take a dead, diseased, dying body and make it come back to life except it looked like Frankenstein. Now, we know what happens to people when, they're di when they die. But in our culture, we're not exposed to the reality of a dead body like those in the days of the Corinthians. We're, especially in the Western world, it's a very sanitized version for the most part, is it not? Unless you work in the medical field or uh, EMT or we see... Most of the time, 95% of what we see of a dead body is in a casket after it's been embalmed. But even then, we know how terrible it is. I remember being 10 years old, seeing the first dead body that I ever saw, my papa toy, my dad's father. And I remember walking up to the casket, and I remember touching his hard hand. And, it, and you think, when you see that, is that it? Is that all there is? You live life and end up looking like that? So as difficult as death is for any of us to understand, here's what Paul does. He still rebukes the Corinthians' unbelief, we're going to see, 
And the reason he does, Paul has full expectation that a non-Christian would have no category for death and dying. But for a Christian, Paul is saying that in the casket is not all there is. I've been trying to tell you that. And so here, look what he does. He gives them a lesson in this seminar from nature. From nature. Read with me verse 36 through 41. <laughs> he says, you foolish person. Ask the questions, his response, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. <clears throat> and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of flesh for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, there is another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory." So Paul's here is giving them a lesson of nature. And here's what he says in verse 36. He says, you foolish person. It's the same word used in Psalm 14 in the Old Testament translation that says, you, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He uses this strong word to rebuke. And this is why, because anybody that rejects the resurrection of the dead must also reject the resurrection of Christ. And if you reject the resurrection of Christ, then you also reject the gospel. And if you reject the gospel, you stand condemned in your sins and as the person who says there is no God. This is not just name calling. It's not just insults. Paul is using this language purposely and necessarily to shock the Corinthians, to wake up from your drunken stupor, to give them smelling salts of the soul, if you would. And Paul is saying to them, the evidence for the resurrection is right before your eyes. I've laid it out for you. The, the, from authority of scriptures, from the eyewitness to the apologetics, the, the logic, he went through everything. If this is not true, we're all to be pitied. Paul says, I've laid all that out right in front of you, but also what is right in front of you is that the resurrection is true based on general revelation, based on nature, something that you experience every single day of your life. The Corinthians are saying this. They're saying, they're saying, I can't comprehend how something could die, be buried, and then come back again. And Paul says to that, to that thought, you foolish person. Think about, he says to them, think about what you ate today. What you ate probably was buried died and then came back in another form that you put in your belly. Happens all the time in nature. And yet you're determined not to believe. Tomato seed is buried. I love tomatoes. My favorite is tomato fruit or vegetable. I call it a vegetable. I call potatoes vegetables too, so... <laughs> 
Is that a vegetable? How about macaroni and cheese? <laughs> we know a tomato seed, right? Tomato seed is buried or sown. It dies and the seed is resurrected as a what? Tomato. Paul is saying because the seed dies, it becomes something much more beautiful. Because the seed dies, it also comes to life in a different but much better form. Death, Paul is saying, in the natural world is a precondition for life. You see it every day in creation. I thought even in, death, God's, even in death, God's purposes are not frustrated. So first thing he does, he removes this barrier, if you would, that the death of a body, just because a body dies, it can't be resurrected. And now he starts to give them more information based on God's creative capacity. Look at verse 38. It says, another reason for Paul's strong rebuke, though, is this when he calls them foolish person, is because the Corinthians in verse 38 shows us they had forgotten God in their thinking about the resurrection. Notice in their question, it says, and there's two questions. Do you see God mentioned in verse 35 at all? No. And so Paul uses this phrase, but God. I thought about this, that that maybe, just maybe, Paul would not have rebuked the Corinthians if they would have included their questions like this. How can God raise the dead? And what kind of body does God give those that he does raise? I think Paul would have said, those are great questions because you didn't leave out the God equation. Matter of fact, one writer said, studying this passage, that the words but God were the most important words in the text. And so from 38 to 41, Paul takes us back to the creation account where God simply spoke and created all that we see. And Paul makes this parallel. If God can do that, that's the God equation, then he certainly can raise a physical body from the dead and give it a new transformed body. So Paul takes them back to Genesis chapter 1. Let me just read for us as a reminder. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, just spoke. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God called the expanse heaven. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, fruit trees, bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it, I love that, and it was so. And God said, let there be lights in the swamps of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And it was so. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the spans of the heavens. And it was so. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And this is what Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15, according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth, according to their kinds. And it was so. So Paul takes them back to creation. And he says, look at all the diversity of God. 
just as the animals and birds and fish differ in kind of body they have, so does the resurrection body differ in kind from the natural body. He's making that point. Just as the brilliance and glory and splendor of the sun differs from the moon and stars, so does the resurrection body differ from the natural body's brilliance and glory and splendor. So here's the big idea. Paul is saying, if God has so arranged and ordered the natural realm in this way, that he can speak and create all that you and I see, why Corinthians, why Fellowship Bible Church, why believers worldwide, is it hard to imagine that God can take a dead, corrupted, diseased, rotting, decaying body, raise it from the dead in a much better and beautiful eternal form. One writer put it this way, he said, God created man from the dust of the earth. Death turns man back to dust. And out of this dust, God can create anything he chooses and promises to create. Another thing Paul wants to emphasize here in these verses is that the creatures that God created were made specifically, if you would, to function in their environment. So the body of a bird, for example, it's lightweight and most of their, their bones are hollow so that it can fly. That's part of its glory. Then you got the body of a whale whose, whose body was made to, to survive the pressures of the depth of the sea. That's part of its glory. So Paul is saying God has given us this natural body that is really perfect for our existence here in this environment of earth. And when he raises us from the dead, he's going to give us a body that will also be perfect for the environment of the new heaven and new earth for eternity. Both are glorious and ideal for their environment. So that's the instruction, first lesson of the seminar. And then what Paul does... He takes them from the classroom and he walks across the hallway to the lab. We understand that. When you take chemistry, you have a chemistry class and you have a lab where the practical comes to bear. And that's what he does through 42 through 44. Read with me. He says, so is it with the resurrection of the, so, so is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also, that's a statement, a spiritual body. If Paul says if there is a natural body that you and I all wear, there will be a spiritual body. And by that, he doesn't mean some nebulous spirit that you can see floating around. He, he's talking about a body made for the spiritual world. So here's what Paul does. Goes to the classroom, to the lab. Very practical here. He says, he, in this text, he gives us eight attributes to describe our bodies. The four of them describe our bodies as they currently are. Do you notice those? Perishable, dishonor, weakness, and natural. And then he gives us four attributes that will describe our resurrection body, our body to come. 
imperishable, glory, power, and spiritual. And here's what Paul is doing. He's really emphasizing two things. The first he's emphasizing, it's a contrasting list, what will be the same after our resurrection body is given. There's something that will be the same between our natural body and our resurrection body. And then secondly, he's emphasizing what will be different between our resurrection body and our natural body. So here's what will be the same, okay? As he continues, Paul says uh, with this nature or agriculture motif from the previous verses, he uses this term sowing and raising. He says, in essence, if you sow an acorn, how do you say acorn or acorn? Acorn? I say acorn, but I'm going to say both for those of you who are elite. Okay? <laughs> acorn or acorn, you get an acorn or acorn tree. You don't get a corn stalk, right? So Paul is saying the sameness, there's a sameness here between what is sown and what is raised. The resurrection body you will get. It will differ from your present body, but it will still be you. The form changes, but it will still be you. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know if I get my 25-year-old version of me. I hope so, versus the 54-year-old version. There's a tad difference, right? So he didn't give us those kind of details, but it said you will still be you, okay? That will be the same. Here's how it will be different, and this is encouraging. He says it will go from perishable to imperishable. The resurrection body will not be subject to corruption or death. It will go from dishonor to glory. Look, we know that there's nothing noble about the process of dying or death, but our resurrection bodies, he says, will shine with glory. It will go from weakness. We can't hide that from the human body, can we? We all succumb to it in time to the disease of the human body. But he says the resurrection body will be characterized by power. And then he says the physical body or natural body, that it suits us, yes, very well here on earth, but restates again that our spiritual bodies will suit us perfectly for eternity. So what is the same and what is different? Now, I know many of you, as we live in this broken world and our church grows, we experience health difficulties. And so I'm not making fun of those. I'm just speaking for me because there's nothing to be made fun of. But I just know for me in the last few weeks, I have dropped several thousand, two or three thousand dollars just on my teeth and my right eye. I had a torn retina. My teeth are rotten. And I do brush, okay? But I, I, I can't. Some of you are surprised by that probably. I, I, I am turkey hunting early in the mornings, and my knees ache after chasing them wild gobblers. I actually found two weeks ago, I have to confess, a gray nose hair. How about that? It, it must have grown four inches overnight. That's what happens when you get older. I'm like, really? I thought about the five B's of aging. Baldness, bifocals, bridges, bulges, and bunions. I got four. <laughs> it's just proof. It's just proof that these earth suits, our physical bodies, were not made to last forever. Made for a short time. All these elements we have, 
and more to come physically as our body deteriorates, the longer we live. Scream to me and you that we need a new body, a different kind of body, a resurrection body. One person said the resurrection of our bodies will take us from caterpillar form to butterfly status in the blink of an eye. Another used the picture of or, or example of before and after photos. Before and after will be times a zillion better afterward. And never needs a tune-up. Never needs more adjustments. So then lastly, Paul gives them a lesson from nature. He gives them this application from this lesson of nature. And then he goes back to the classroom and he starts to teach again on a lesson from genealogy. Look at verses 45 through 49. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the, spirit, the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I am going to confront Paul about this passage when I see him in heaven. There were too many also's and of's in there, okay? But Paul can be hard to read at times. Let, let me unpack this a little bit. Monty spoke of this last week because Paul touched on it last week in Monty's passage. But he goes a little bit deeper here. And this is what he's saying. Paul is now giving the Corinthians and us this lesson from genealogy. And here's what he's saying, that all of humanity is kin to the first Adam. All of us, universal. Who brought, the first Adam brought the entire human race into sin and misery and death due to his disobedience. And then Paul is saying there's another Adam, that's the last Adam, that is Jesus Christ in whom all of the redeemed community, not all universal, just those who place their trust in Christ, we are all kin to him due to his living a perfect sinless life on our behalf. This truth from early theologians for years and church fathers has been called, and maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't, called federal headship. Paul has been saying all along that because Christ was bodily resurrected, we who have placed our trust in his finished work will also be resurrected. Paul has made that point over and over. If Christ was raised and you've trusted in Christ, then you will be raised because you trusted in Christ. So the question, or the, the question we ask is why is that? And it is because we are united with Christ. The resurrection is real for us because our union with Christ is real for us. Also, death was real to us because it's the direct result of our union and under the federal headship of Adam, so that in Adam all died. The certainty of our resurrection is directly connected to the change of our federal headship. There was one man 
in all of history, human history, that was not under the federal headship of Adam. That was Jesus Christ. And this is why Monty mentioned last week, theology matters. The scriptures tell us that Christ was born of a virgin. If Christ was not born of a virgin via the Holy Spirit in the Immaculate Conception, and was born just of a man and woman, then Christ himself would also be under the federal headship of Adam. And if he was under the federal headship of Adam, he would not be God. He would just be an example like Buddha or like Confucius or whoever you want to put up as an example. There's no virgin birth. If Christ was under the federal headship of Adam, you and I do stand condemned in our sins. But because of the virgin birth, Christ is not under that federal headship. See, if we don't get that right, we don't understand that we're under a supernatural genealogy. The federal headship of the last Adam. Here's how that works. And Christ, who was our federal head, kept the whole law perfectly. Therefore, he was actual righteousness. And that makes him able to impute to you and I actual righteousness. And he accepts for us the death we could not pay. And we, in turn, impute to him our sinfulness. It's one of my greatest or most favorite sort of thoughts, there is this great exchange that takes place between the actual righteousness of Christ to us and our sinfulness to Christ. And that word, double imputation, allows us to stand before God under the federal headship of Christ, not only forgiven but righteous. And that in itself is what gives you and I the certainty with great anticipation and great gladness that we too will be resurrected like him. So Paul says, look, we dwell in a natural body like the first Adam. And when Christ returns, we'll be transformed into a spiritual body. As one writer said, I like this phrase better, a supernatural body. Salvation in some ways is about identity transfer. The gospel is good news for a lot of reasons. One of the main reasons it is good news is there has been a change of identity that you and I were under the federal headship of the first Adam and in that we were condemned and dead in our sins. And then once we came to Christ, we were transferred under another head. And because of that, we are guaranteed not only resurrection, but resurrection bodies that are perfect for the environment we're going to live in and go to. I am uh, you know as you get older start thinking about your funeral a little bit so I want to make a public declaration today when I die 30 or 40 years from now <laughs> I do eat chia seeds every day so maybe that will help and delay it I, I'm going to ask that you bury me with a fork in the hand you know why? All my life growing up in church and around church and around big places where you eat a lot of food, after the main dish and main food and potlucks was gone, 
there'd be people, usually women, coming around, cleaning up paper plates, throwing things away. And as they did, they would make this statement. Maybe some of you have said it or remember. They would say, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. You ever heard that? And what they meant was banana pudding, strawberry shortcake, 16-layer chocolate cake. My grandmother, Mammy, if you, anybody want to make me one? I'm, I'm, I'm your huckleberry. I'll let you know if it's good. And I, I make you feel good about your cooking. Even if it's bad, I make you feel good about it. Look, the best is yet to come. And so I thought, I'm laying in my casket. They put a big old fork in the general's hand, right? Laying right there. And people come up. Let's say Phil Hearn is doing my sermon, uh, my eulogy. And Phil's weeping, sobbing. He can't hardly talk because he's so sad he lost me. <laughs> I don't know. He don't know how he's going to make it through life without the general to help him and counsel him and help him calm down. <laughs> and as he does that, there's a big old fork in my hand, and people come up and say, Phil, why was Jeff buried with a fork in his hand? He said, because he knew the best was yet to come. This is not all there is, folks. This is not all there is. If you don't believe what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, you have several other options, and they're all bad, okay? One is you have reincarnation. Reincarnation means you're going to be kind to the little dog because the dog, little dog, could be your Uncle Joe who died and came back as the little dog, right? You're not going to kill flies around your house because you don't know. It, that might have been your neighbor just passed away. Like, that's a bad one. Another option is is that you die and you decay and you get eaten by worms and that's it. That is it. A, th a third option could be you do come back in some spirit body and you're Casper de Gose's cousin, right? I mean, they're not, or fourthly, some would say you die and you, there's seven virgins awaiting you in heaven. I mean, you go look at all the world's religions and what they say about eternity and our raised body, and none of them have any worth and value to them. I don't want any of them, but I'll take this one. Every time, I'll take that. Paul says, wake up from your drunken stupor. <laughs> I'm telling you, when you die and Christ returns, he's going to give you a new body just like he gave Christ. And it's going to be perfect for the environment of heaven and eternity. And you're going to be better off. There'll be no more dental bills. Right, Wayne? He's experienced bad teeth too. Take a minute. Ask the question, so what this morning? What does it mean that Christ raised from the dead, therefore we're going to raise? What does it mean to you in terms of life and work and play and family and priorities? And Ask yourself the question that morning, this morning, so what? Mm -hmm.